0: Welcome to La Cura Podcast, decolonizing Latinx Health and Reclaiming Traditional Healing. This is your host, Francisca Porches Coronado. La Cura Podcast is a project of mi gente in collaboration with Resilience Strategies.
1: La Cura in a lot of conversations that I've had the past few weeks, anxiety has been a huge um, thing for a lot of folks. And I think um, I'm glad that people are naming actually how they're feeling versus a pre COVID world where folks were either say I'm okay or shut down and kind of disappear for some time, or you just knew things weren't well, but you weren't clear why. And I'm just, I'm grateful in this moment that people are naming that they have a lot of anxiety and they feel stressed. Um, and I felt like, well, let me call on Ida whose, um, specialty is anxiety, stress, depression, um, to tell us a little bit more about these, these, um, concepts and how we embody them and then really practical ways in which we can navigate, um these feelings when they come up or these sort of states of mind, right? Um and so, um, Ida, welcome. I would love for you to tell our folks a little bit more about yourself.
2: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Um and I'm always excited to talk about this. So any opportunity, I'm just so jazzed. Um, especially with folks as wonderful as you, Francisca. So who am I um I'm a clinical social worker based out of Boston uh, I provide therapy and focus a lot on communities that are generally marginalized or given crappy services in other ways so I work with communities of color immigrant folks so the focus on Uh, black and Latinx folks. Um, I do a lot of work with people in sexuality or gender minorities, things like that. So usually the people who are afraid to get therapy or who have been hurt by therapy, those are the kinds of people that I predominantly work with, albeit not exclusively. So the therapy piece is a big one. I also do education and public speaking and writing and a bunch of other things. So if you want to kind of summarize it, I do micro work sort of in the individual and interpersonal sphere with people and their relationships through therapy. And then I also do larger scale work through movement building, community organizing, working around like non-carceral forms of community justice and things like that with a focus on sexuality, especially. So I like the little things one on one. I like the big things. I'm real greedy and I say that positively. So that's, that's mostly what I do at this point. And I'm I'm blessed to be based out of Boston, but actually get to travel a lot. And one of my other like heart centers is in New York, where I have a lot of chosen family and a like sanctuary community up there. So that's that's my jam.
1: So good to have you. Um, well, let's dive in. Um, anxiety. So I have been on a slew of webinars, um, work uh zoom calls like zoom 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 a lot of um, (laughs) conversations with movement people that are um or have been typically on the front lines or folks who are advocates activists just a whole lot of folks and even people outside of that people that are just homies that are in community here and anxiety is like the key word right now and, um, in our earlier conversation, I think you, you, um, named something that was really interesting, but I, it did make me wonder whether folks are kind of using it as a blanket sort of word for everything they're feeling. Um, unless people are really clear, like, yes, this is anxiety. I know exactly what anxiety feels like. Um, so, I uh, wanted to ask you, how do you define
2: anxiety? So I'm going to answer that, but I'm going to take a step back too, um, and actually just talk about briefly the concept of diagnosing, Um, because if you're not a therapist, you might not have a lot of information on how the heck we're supposed to even do that as therapists. So in short, the way that I'm trained, the way that I practice, a diagnosis is not generally this uh, perfect, objective, scientific, measurable thing. Um, And a lot of people try to tell us it is, and it's not. Spoiler alert, it's not. Um, It is partly an art. It is something that is very subjective, though we do have science and measurements that we use for it. And so that's why sometimes you'll get, you know information from one therapist that diagnoses you as bipolar. And then you talk to another therapist and they diagnose you with depression. It's not necessarily that one therapist is right and the other is wrong, but there's a lot of things that we look at to, to even diagnose in the first place. And so, you know, one person might be focusing on your current cluster of symptoms. One person might be looking at your entire history and have a different interpretation of what was going on. So I, I, I like to talk about the labels and how to identify these different things. But honestly, one of the biggest pieces of advice I have for people is to a little bit get away from the labeling and actually talk about what does this feel like in my body? What does this make as an impact in my life rather than themselves trying to figure out the name from the get-go instead of going name and then seeing, does this fit kind of going in reverse, looking at all the things that you're dealing with and what words might be useful to describe that? Um, and actually, Francisca, I think you're totally spot on. There's a lot of people that are talking about anxiety as, an, as a catch-all. Um, and one of the big things I've seen in my practice and sort of in community is that a lot of folks say anxiety or tengo ansiedad because there's a stigma around other health issues or other mental health conditions, particularly depression mm-hmm. and trauma. Um, and so, you know, I've had clients where we go through the checklist, the the manual of diagnoses, we go through the depression checklist, they meet all the criteria, and then they still are like, mm, I think it's anxiety though. And it's not that they're wrong, right? Depression can have anxiety and vice versa, which is what makes it a little bit messy to diagnose. Right. Um, but also a lot of people carry this idea that depression is isolating that depression means no one wants to be your friend. That depression means you're going to have to be alone. You're going to be a bummer to everyone around you and you best just leave the world. Um, whether that's literally through something like suicidal ideation or more metaphorically, like I'm just not going to call all my friends and not text back and just hole up in my house. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's this idea that depression is very lonely and it's not that it's false. Depression can be extremely isolating and that's part of the issue with it. Um, but they, a lot of people see anxiety as this more perhaps socially acceptable thing that you can still have a good life with. And so not having the, not that again, not that anxiety doesn't have stigma, but it has a different flavor of it. Um, and so some people will just use it as a catch all term because that's maybe what they know or what they think is more Okay. Um, so that being said, right, I'm probably going to rant later about (laughs) liberation health and diagnosing and the, you know, industry of pharma and all that. So I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, but for now to answer your initial question about anxiety, um, here's one of the things anxiety comes in different flavors. So if we look at the DSM, which is kind of this, this very big, thick book, of mental, you know, men, quote unquote, mental disorders. Um, we see that there's a bunch of different types of anxiety disorders. Um, my job here is not to give you a rundown of all of them. My job here is not to tell you how to, you know, perfectly diagnose yourself. Um, but I want to give you at least a, a couple of ideas of common things to keep in mind. So one of the types of anxiety is, or that's diagnosable is panic disorder we also have social anxiety, and we also have generalized anxiety. Those are some of the ones that people tend to hear about. Um, They're a little different from each other, but they have a lot of overlap. And surprise, you can have more than one at a time. And so it makes it hard sometimes for people to tell. Um, And so things to keep in mind of what this would feel like in your body, what kind of impact it might be having. If you have more on the generalized anxiety edge of things. Um, you might get really fatigued. You might have troubles with concentration or feeling like you're blanking out. Um, you might be irritable. Um, and pe- other people may or may not be able to tell, but you might just fe- feel really cranky. Um, you might have difficulty sleeping, whether that's because you're having a hard time staying asleep or going to sleep. Um, one of the hallmarks of general anxiety is just excessively worrying about everyday things. The question is, what is excessive worry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can have a lot of muscle tension. You can have stomach problems, right? And as I'm describing this, this is a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And these things can also be related to not just other mental health issues, but also other physical, you know, less mentally based issues as well. Um, And the more we learn about mental health, the more we learn about anxiety and depression, the more we're realizing that mental health issues are not just brain based. Some are more brain based than others, as far as we know, but a lot of them are just, they they deal with the entire body, right? Our gut health affects our mood. Um, I have a partner who had his, um, liver was, was, was enlarged and it was affecting his mood. And so rather than thinking, oh, this is all in your head, they had to get their liver addressed so that their mood could improve. Um, and so this is all, again, this is all really messy. Um, but generally, general anxiety, again, this idea of you're just worrying a lot over everyday events. And it's usually intrusive. It's hard to stop thinking about those things. Um, When we think about panic attacks or panic disorder specifically, that's usually related to incidents of panic. Um, And there's a couple ways that I'll define that, but unexpected and recurring. um, And you're not actually in danger by any sort of metric. You're feeling like you're in danger and really freaked out, but there's not, you know, there's not a lion around you. There's no one with a gun to you. You're in a generally safe place. Um, but you're feeling really overwhelmed. And so you might, you know, sweat a lot. You might be, you start trembling and shaking. You lose your breath. You feel like there's an elephant on your chest. You might feel dizzy, nauseated. Your body might get really cold or really hot. You might stop feeling your fingers or toes. You start to kind of feel numb. Um, you might feel. Like you're going, and I'll say this purposely. you feel like you're going crazy. Like you feel like you're losing your mind. Mm-hmm. You feel the sense of doom that you can't explain. You fear dying in that moment. Like my heart is going to beat so fast. I'm going to literally die now. Um, and you don't have to have all of those, right? For for panic disorder, you just need a couple of them. Um, usually it's at least four of some of those things that I mentioned. Um but again, it's it's more about the individual and recurring incidents of that like big wave of overwhelm. Um, and then we have social anxiety, which is more about... It's similar in how it presents to generalized anxiety, to be frank. But a lot of the worry, instead of it being general about everyday life events, it's about um, performing in front of others. It's about being watched or seen. It's about meeting people. It might prevent you from, you know, making calls to your doctor or to your friend. It might make it hard to go get your nails done or go get a haircut or go to the grocery store because it's, it's scary to have people, um, looking at you or judging you again, the judgment piece comes up a lot. Um, and you don't have to feel deep panic for social anxiety. The idea is that you're worried about what other people will think to such a degree that it is affecting your day-to-day life. Um, so when we look at things like anxiety or any kind of mental health issue, we're usually thinking about what the symptoms themselves are, how much they affect your daily functioning, and then also how long something has been going on. Because for certain diagnoses, we need a month or six months or, you know, some length of time that these things must have been going on. So the, the way that I try to summarize some of this is that anxiety is, usually feels very fast. There is a Zoom quality to it, um, but also there is a freeze component. So maybe sometimes you're so anxious uh, that you can't even move. Um, Whereas with depression, we might have a freeze, but depression is usually, it makes me think of honey or molasses. It's usually slow. It's usually something that keeps you at home and isolated, but in a different vibe. Um, And so those are the things that we think about when we think about anxiety. Um, But again, depression can also come with anxious distress and anxiety can also come with depressed mood. So- (laughs) that's sort of the 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 stuff that we have in the books Mm -hmm. but again in day-to-day life it's super messy yeah it's very overlapping
1: i mean everything is and i think i appreciate you naming um your um you know liberation psychology i don't know i don't think you called it that but your radical lens on on mental health because obviously we know that uh, the way that Western mental health has been, has played out in the history of this country has been really racist and ableist and homophobic and sexist and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I appreciate you kind of naming that, like, there's also, you know, um, over pathologizing and, uh, and mm-hmm. over diagnosing, um, that could also happen. And, um, but then there's also like the reality that we do, you know, feel a lot of these things more in our body and we can't always cognitively process them or explain them. Mm-hmm. And that then what we feel is like, I'm anxious or I'm, you know, you're right. Like, I think more people want to name that they're anxious and depressed and depression. I think, I don't know, I guess is that I, it just feels so much deeper and it might mm-hmm. be more of a, of what has been pathologized. I think for, um, more than um, anxiety which can be like an everyday stress type thing you know Um, Mm -hmm. and for me like I definitely am a very anxious person and maybe I'm depressed, but no (laughs) I (laughs) um, the way that it manifests for me and I've had conversations with a good friend about this because she's also a very anxious person uh, or at least both of us think we are and this is way before you know a pandemic Um, this is more like growing up with a mom who was constantly over worrying about everything. It was like 24 seven, the amount of worry that she would carry in her body and talk about was like wild. Right. And, and I Uh felt like a lot of that was inevitably, like we co-regulate each other, our nervous systems, you know, co-regulate each other and definitely a mother to a child. And so I felt like that is something that was, culturally completely acceptable and almost felt like a role, uh, for me. Um, so that over worrying, knowing that like you have no control over anything. And if, and I, now I tell her, I'm like, if worrying only resulted in something coming out the way you wanted it, then I would be like, yeah, go ahead worry because you'll get results. (laughs) But it mounts to nothing except wreaking havoc on your nervous system. And so for me, it's worry. And then the other thing when it's at its height, and I don't, maybe this is the panic stuff is like, I do feel, I don't get to a point where I think I'm going to die, but there's a heaviness on my chest and I have to kind of breathe deeply so that I can, breathe, so I can breathe and feel like feeling to my body. And, um, and then I feel like an urge to cry, um, or like a little bit of a helplessness. And I've definitely had a couple of days like that over the last few weeks, and I definitely a lot over my life. And so, um, the other thing that I was talking about, talking to my good friend about it, is that we're like, anxiety really pushes us. And this is maybe a really backward way of thinking about it. I'm curious what you think. It's like, but we're so, we've used anxiety as a tool (laughs) so bad. Um, We almost see it as our little friend who's going to get us to be more effective and productive. And we're mm-hmm. like, if we didn't have anxiety, would we be as on top of our stuff as we are? Would we be um, as good at whatever we're trying to do as we are? You know, so it's like somewhat insidious. Like, okay, if anxiety went away, what would be left? Like, what would push mm. you really, you know? And that's really terrible when you think about it. And I'm like, I mean, there's also joy and a whole bunch of other things, you know? But I'm like, it's
2: kind of disturbing when you think about it. Like you're- oh my God, absolutely. <laughs> um, so to, to normalize some of what you're saying, right? Anx- here's the thing too, right? The the capital A anxieties versus the little a anxieties. Anxiety is honestly just part of being human to some extent. Depressed moods are part of being human. These books didn't invent those feelings. Um, and anxiety and depression can be part of any life experience that we have and have that be okay without it being a disorder, without it impeding our daily functioning, which is what would make it a mental disorder. Um, So first of all, that, right? Like all of us are gonna feel anxious and sad and depressed at some point, and that's just life. Um, The other piece to keep in mind is that these are real reactions to social problems. Um, There's a lot of stories about anxiety or depression just being in your head, and being fake? And absolutely not, right? A lot of what we're seeing in this moment right now is completely reasonable experiences and reactions to social injustice, to deep trauma, to environmental and, and economic collapse. We It would be weird if a lot of us were not experiencing things like anxiousness and depression. Um, so on one hand, I want people to not just locate these issues within their own brains and within their own bodies, but see them as part of a larger web of reactions, other bodies, human or otherwise, a lot of us are experiencing this because the world is experiencing this. Um, And to the question of sort of (laughs) anxiety is a little friend or a little, you know, imp. um, again, I think that that is a partly helpful frame and partly unhelpful and I'll, and I'll explain. So partly because so many of us are taught to view any mental health thing as a disorder, as an illness, as a bad thing we have to get rid of. I think it's revolutionary to think of, okay, how can I see depression as potentially a friend or anxiety as a friend or as a well-meaning person (laughs) who comes to my house every so often, but (laughs) maybe is not a friend Um, and look at the, at the things that it can do for us. So with anxiety, It's true. Sometimes anxiety mobilizes us and that's really beautiful and important. And also it's important to, to realize that people with that anxiety also mobilize, huh? Right. If you take anxiety away, you probably could still mobilize. You might just have to shift how you do it. Um, And so that's one of the things that I see a lot of people struggling with when they go on medication or they go to therapy or they receive ritualized healing of some kind they change what is going on with them and it changes internally or externally or both. And then they're left with, okay, so how do I live now? You know, How am I supposed to do my day-to-day activities now? I live in a kind of different world or body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not an overnight thing usually, um, but when you're changing, which is what you're trying to do with medication and therapy, if you're trying to heal, you will have to change the way that you work. And that might mean you work more, that might mean you work less, often it means you work differently. And so I absolutely think that we can look at these um, issues or disorders with the lens of compassion and like, okay, what can this teach me, right? Like what good has this brought into my life, but also being really honest about the ways that it makes things hard, right? I've had clients with OCD, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, where their OCD makes them really good at actually effectively planning travel routes. Oh, and so yeah. that's <laughs> like a really helpful way to, to mobilize their issue. At the same time, OCD can be extremely debilitating and make it really hard to, to live, to connect to people. I've had people, you know, during this time where their OCD has gotten so um, activated that they're washing their hands raw right and we're getting all these messages of wash your hands wash your hands and you know because of their ocd it goes so intensely that their their skin is all chapped and and, and mm. it's very painful um, so at the same time that we hold the positives or the possible gifts and lessons we also have to be really honest about what are the ways that this is harming me because a lot of people don't seek help and i don't mean help with a therapist it might be that it might be something else for you but There is always going to be something left over if you deal with your troubles. There will always be something left over that you can plant seeds in and you can grow with and from. You don't have to be afraid of of losing yourself as a person because you're getting help. Um, But if you are afraid, there are ways of talking through that, managing that, and planning for it. Um, It just requires honesty that that's what's going on in the first place.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Recognizing it, which you feel like it's kind of refreshing that so many people are saying, I feel this way. I have these feelings. Um, whereas, like I said, it just wasn't a topic of conversation in meetings, um, or in spaces where we're trying to move forward a worldview or a plan or strategy or whatever it was. And so it's both, Really good that people are naming it, and then I also feel like we aren't really doing enough to figure out um how to support people. Whether that is
2: mm-hmm. even
1: just saying what you're feeling is totally righteous, and thank you for naming it, and what kind of support do you need? um It's just kind of like uh, people, uh, you, you end the call, and people are like, ooh, that that was rough. People are struggling, you know. Um Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so what do you feel like are helpful ways in which people can navigate anxiety? I mean, both obviously in this moment or I think in general. I mean there's so much to it, right? I think everybody's like you said manifests differently. Some people might freeze, other people might be like and like myself, like anxiety makes me move in a hundred different directions, you know? Um, or at least that's what I think. Maybe I'm OCD. <laughs> um, <laughs> not to pathologize myself, I think I have a lot of worry energy for sure that I've inherited
2: mm-hmm.
1: ancestrally, and um, I'm I'm also just Mexican, and that's like part of our <laughs> DNA ancestrally. <unfortunately. laughs> um, and then you know from from my mother, like I said, and so it's like, how do we? What are some even just Important ways in which we can, right now, um, you know, navigate it um, with what we have. And then also, obviously, everybody should have some healers in their life. Like, that's the big one. Like, whoever it is, whether it's a therapist, whether it's an elder, whether it's an acupuncturist, whether it's somebody who can, you know, meditate with you, a buddy, whatever it is, you know, we all need those kinds of folks um, in our lives to, to support, to regulate our nervous system in general, you know?
2: Absolutely. And I actually love that you bring in the ancestors and culture into it. That's often missed in a lot of conversations about, you know, how can we get help for the stuff our <laughs> that our brains and bodies do? And honestly, ancestral healing and connecting with ancestors is a big part for some of us. And that's, you know, whether you're having an ofrenda, whether you're doing rituals at the ocean, um, human bodies and minds and body minds are geared toward ritual. We are geared toward finding patterns. We are geared toward song and dance and stories. And so those are some of the vehicles that we can actually use for purposes of understanding ourselves, for calming ourselves and for healing, whether it's depression, grief, trauma, anxiety, whatever. Um, A lot of the things that I would recommend would honestly kind of be the same for a lot of these, especially because a lot of us are holding multiple of these at the same time. So connecting with ancestry, whatever that means to you, right? For some people, that means they're going to do an elevation ritual. For some people, that means they're going to, you know, have an altar of, you know, I'm Puerto Rican and Cuban. And so maybe, you know, I I have an altar of Boricua stuff and like candles and shells and sand and earth and all these different parts that feels really grounding to me. If I'm stressed, sometimes I'll just sit in front of it, light a candle and chill. Um, So the ancestry piece, the spirit piece, the ritual piece is huge. um, And that can involve other people, but it doesn't have to. Um, I will also put a shout out here to medication. Uh, medication, again, messy history and messy present and probably future. Um, Medication can be really dicey. It can cause side effects, right? There's a lot of negatives absolutely to medication and how we access it in this country. And also I have seen it transform the lives of countless people Mm -hmm. that were Unable to sort of do basic stuff in their lives and we're feeling isolated, scared, worried all the time, unable to connect to other folks, like be again transformed. Um, Again, both clients, people close to me, I've seen it so many times that for people who are really pro medication, I would tell you, okay, calm down. (laughs) Medication has its (laughs) downside. But if you're someone who's like, oh God, medication's bad or medication means that my problem is real. I'm like your problem is already real, whether or not you throw meds at mm, it, just, right. <laughs> just consider it's already there. Not taking the medication doesn't make it go away. Um, you know, but with medication, sometimes that can be transformative. So I would, I would urge people to not discount that as a tool in a larger, you know, toolkit. Um, Honestly, a lot of things are pretty are pretty basic um, that we want to look at. We want to look at sleep, food, community connections. Those are some of the first places where you want to start intervening. If someone's struggling, right, are you getting enough sleep? If you're not, what does it look like when you're not, um, you know, because it might be something as simple as, okay, the sunlight wakes you up because now you live in a new apartment and you're just waking up at six in the morning. Maybe the, maybe what we do is blackout curtains. Maybe that's all you need, but maybe you're waking up because you're really worried that your mom is in a different state and you can't visit her during the pandemic and you wake up in a cold sweat because you're really freaked out about that. That's not going to be fixed with a blackout curtain, right? Yeah. So looking at, you know, environmental modifications with things, again, sleep, food, you know, anything that's going in or on or around our bodies. um, But also doing the work to get to the root of some of our worries and concerns, right. Um, Calming herbs and tinctures are really helpful for some folks. Um, You know, well, if you know herbalists, they can also be really helpful in this moment. Um, Some people don't have access to formalized uh, medication that needs a prescription, but for example, they'll try something like valerian root or they'll try 5-HTP or St. John's wort to deal with mood and sort of stability. Um, Those are things that I would also encourage people to look into, but also, again, be careful with. Because again, if you're putting something in your body, watch what it'll do. And if you're working with someone, whether it's a friend or a professional, who, who knows what they're talking about? Um, other tools, um, and these are sort of s- smaller interventions for the moment. Um, first of all, I would encourage people to do one to three new strategies at a time and focus on trying those and getting them down versus <laughs> let me try 20 different interventions because- it's not going to work out.
1: It's not. <laughs>
2: I'm um, <saw> <laughs> like yeah.
1: time, 100 things and then I'm like, oof, <laughs> I'm done. I don't want to do nothing.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm calling you out. I'm calling myself out. I'm calling, you know, everyone out here. Um, sometimes we think that more is better and that's not always the case. And in fact, that can also just make us more overwhelmed. It can also make us feel really bad if we try it, if we try 20 things and they don't work. We feel like we're the ones that are broken and maybe it's that those weren't the right fit or we didn't give them enough of a chance. So the, the ones that I would, some of the ones that I would share are any bodily intervention that forces you to be present in your body in a way that also feels doable, right? I am trans. I work with a lot of trans people and people with body stuff. Sometimes our body is not the place where we want to be and we very much would like to leave. Um, So You know, when people are doing grounding or meditation or anything like that, and they're being told to move certain parts of their bodies that feel bad. Yeah, just don't focus on those, right? What are the safe places in your body? I don't care if it's your pinky or your toenail, focus and find the places that are safe. And use those when you're grounding. So, for some people, it means they will, you know, if they're having a panic attack or if they're having a moment of intense anxiety and zoom, zoom energy that they can't get rid of, something like holding ice um, or rubbing ice on your hands or anything that kind of changes the temperature and gives you a little bit of a jolt can be helpful. That can also be cold water to the face um, in intervals of like five to 10 seconds. Um, because part of what that does to your nervous system is it, again, it gives a little, you know, like a reset. Um, and it also forces you to get out of your swirling brain for a minute, because that's where a lot of anxiety can also live. Um, another way of doing some of this, if you're in a panic mode or if you're, kind of feeling like you're leaving your body and you would like to return. I call it the rainbow countdown. Other people call it other things, but I just like to make things as gay as possible. When <laughs> <I'm>, um, so <laughs> it's just rainbow countdown. Um, basically, using the colors of the rainbow, um, find, name, or point to, or touch. Again, you can be flexible here because not everyone has all the same abilities and faculties, and we want to be anti-ableist in our suggestions. Um, but consider... Um, you know, things that are red or things that are one particular texture. Um, and uh, this, this example is more for folks who can see colors. Um, so adjust this as needed. So let me find three to five red things in the room. Then let me find three to five orange things in the room. Then let me find three to five yellow things in the room. And you go down the rainbow. The idea behind this is when you're spiraling or when you're really having a messy time in that way, um, this focuses your energies on a couple of different mental processes that divert, basically divert the energy from the freak out that you're having. Um, And so you're having to look through a room and evaluate your surroundings. You're having to think about a particular color and look to see, okay, where is that color? you're having to keep in mind what color you're at in the rainbow. So you're having to do a lot of like complicated processes there that make it very hard to, at the same time, be having a freak out. Um, so it's, it's partly distraction, honestly. Um, but purposeful distraction that has a structure so that you don't continue to spiral. Um, so those are a couple of things. Um, another one is, uh, you know, honestly, and I said this on another podcast recently, doing things that babies do. (laughs) Um, Babies are very wise. And as adults, we are told (laughs) to not do things that babies do. And, you know, maybe pooping in public in during a meeting is not the best (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) But perhaps, you know, singing very loudly when we're very angry is actually a great strategy. And it can be so. um, Babies do a lot of attempts at self-soothing and adults often offer these things to babies. So if you are feeling, again, stress or anxiety or a trauma reaction or anything like that, things like uh, rocking back and forth, um, things like singing, things like walking, again, whatever is accessible to your body, not all of us can walk. Not all of us would feel comfortable singing. Uh, humming might be a part of doing that. Um, giving your body some love again in a safe place. So maybe if you are, um, you know, floating away from your body, touching your arms or your elbows, and kind of giving them gentle holding, hugging motions to just come back to your body. Remember that you have a physical form. Um, those can be those can be helpful things. Maybe sometimes just roll around. Um, sometimes babies will scream and sometimes all you just, you just need to scream and that's okay. I give you permission to scream. Just consider, you know, is it 3am and are your neighbors going to be upset at you? But you know, sometimes we just have to be like a baby. Um, and those are a couple, right. Those are a couple of in the moment strategies. Um, there's also other tools that you can use preventatively. So, I encourage people to check out what are called DBT workbooks. DBT is a kind of therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. They focus a lot on emotional regulation and skill building. Um, You can find a lot of them for free on the internet. So if you don't have money, you don't have to pay for them. Um, And they they can be really helpful. Um, There's an author named Faith Harper who does a lot of work and really accessible language too, Mm. which I find really helpful. Uh, around trauma, around anxiety. She has like specific books about all of these topics. Um, And then there's uh, a guy named Steve Haynes, who has done kind of mini graphic, not novels, but mini graphic books, I'll call it. Um, One is called Trauma is Really Strange. Another one is called Anxiety is Really Strange. And it packs a lot of really useful tips on how to manage these things, but also it packs a lot of theory so if you're trying to understand what's happening with my brain and my body when I'm feeling anxiety or when I'm experiencing trauma, um, it can be really helpful to, to dive into it. Not just with here's 20 pages of five point font text, um, okay. and you know get that information another way. And the final thing, because I know I've been you know been throwing a lot of stuff at you, um, the final thing that I'll say is. Um, Use what I what I and actually a couple of clients considered the anti PHQ nine. Um, so the PHQ nine is a questionnaire used, um, a trademarked by Pfizer. <laughs> FYI, um, it's a questionnaire meant to sort of start an evaluation on depression, and so they'll usually give it to people at um, at doctor's appointments. So if you've ever gotten this little form to fill out with nine questions about you know, how often in the last two weeks have you felt like you wanted to die? Or how often in the last two weeks have you felt, you know, uninterested in food or over-interested in food? That's the PHQ-9. And it just talks about all these markers for depression based on sort of these researchers and the DSM manual for disorders and whatnot. Um, For people who are having a really bad time, kind of all of the time, they will always score really high and it's really hard to see progress and it's really hard to motivate yourself to do anything if you're like, well, I'm screwed always, so why even do anything about it? Um, I've worked with clients to develop their own personalized anti-PHQ-9s, which instead of looking at all these quote-unquote bad things and bad feelings, we look at what would tell me that I am doing well, right? And it's more nuanced, it's more specific and you make a list, and again, here's where you can do it in a lot of different ways. Um, you can use the same model as the PHQ nine. You can depart from it; doesn't really matter as long as it's consistent. Um, and you pick an amount of time, right? Usually, two weeks is a good a good amount. You pick at least you know, ten questions. Sometimes people do more, and you assign a, a point system for if you are, you know, if you are feeling this or doing this. Most of the time, some of the time, rarely or none of the time, or, you know, and sometimes the scales are slightly different, but that's the basic idea. Um, and you can put things on there that would show you that you're doing well, right? So for some clients, it means I got out of bed in the morning, right? And that's a, that, that will tell me that I am doing well. For some people, it is I did a full face of makeup and my eyebrows and, you know, all the things that tells me I'm doing well. For some people, it means I cooked my meals. And that's what that that tells them that they're doing well. So rather than looking at what tells me I'm doing poorly, especially in this world where there's so much to be upset about, what would tell me that I'm doing okay. And using that on a, you know, every two week basis to get a check of okay, damn, you know, last month, I was doing really well. And this month, all these things have kind of gone away. I wonder what's happening. Right. And it can give you a, a measurement so that you can figure some of that out by yourself rather than relying on other people or relying on whatever you're feeling in the moment, um, which can be useful, but sometimes can be misleading in the long run. So that's, that's a million of the tools. And <laughs> I know I've talked for a lot, a long time, but Francisca, I'm actually curious for you, right? Like, Mm-hmm. of these are some of these things things that you've tried I'm particularly interested in this question of ancestral healing and sort of herbalism I don't know if those are things that are relevant to you and the way that you heal
1: well I'm super excited about actually a lot of the tools you named um from the theory of like what in the hell is happening in your body which I love to geek out on that stuff to also um, the stuff around like how am I doing today and what was I able to do sounds really good to, to kind of flip it on its head and make it about these little small small like victories um, on a mm-hmm. daily I think is also really good and I work with a lot of or I have historically currently I'm not as much um, I have worked historically with migrant undocumented people and um, who have to navigate a lot of um a lot of a lot I can't it's all um it all intersects, so you can't say it's just anxiety or it's grief or it seems like depression like there's just so much p t s d probably um that I'm mm-hmm. very excited to share with them some of these tools um for me, I think the biggest thing that has helped me has been my faith and my spirituality. I practice a a spiritual tradition from West Africa, mostly in Benin and Nigeria and parts of Togo, Khalifa, and I've been in it for the last um, 17 years, almost as long as I've been in the movement. I, I don't think I would have stayed actually in movement work if it wasn't for it. And so it helps settle my own nervous system, and it has helped me tremendously. But I do think it has its limitations. I think I'm not one of those people that's like this one thing. Um, will help you kind of um, tackle all that you feel and all that you will navigate in the world. You know, I'm, I'm really big on, um, I love acupuncture. Um, I really believe in it. I feel like it's healed me. I believe in sobadoras, which is like uh, this tradition that I don't think it necessarily comes from Mexico, but it can be found throughout like Central, South America. There's women that just like literally do somatic work I would say that also helps your nervous system but also helps you deal with illnesses so I have found healing in a lot of different people and practices but my obviously my foundation is my my spirituality but yeah I also wanted to to ask you about I mean the other thing that I think people are not naming as much right now is grief and maybe mm-hmm. I'm naming it as grief but there's just a sadness that's real and I don't even know how I would define grief but there is some some level of despair and some really deep sadness that is obviously very normal for us to feel in this moment given the state of the world and that we're also grieving a whole bunch of other stuff not just uh, folks the, the tragedy that has been so many folks getting sick and so many folks dying but also like grief um of like the the world as we know it as we knew it ended you know what i mean and like we now are in a new world and i'm not sure like we'll ever get to be in that old world you know and that is both like a tragic thing in a lot of ways and then also might be a very good thing (laughs) in a lot of other ways too but curious about how you understand grief and and how that shows up for people. And I I just feel like, and maybe I'm being too judgmental, but I just feel like so much, so many of our folks are in denial about it. um, And are maybe labeling anxiety too, uh, as well.
2: Absolutely. Um, I I just need to know that when you were talking about the Sobadoras, I just had this visceral memory of my abuela rubbing me down with uh, alcoholado, which in English is like bay rum or something. And I'm like, man, that is like, I can smell it. I can feel it just as we're talking right now. And that sort of thing, right? If people are like, I don't know what to do. I would invite them to think about, do they have any memories, right? Any positive memories of being held and healed? And sometimes it's unexpected. Like I'm like, oh my God, I haven't thought about that in so long, but yeah, maybe I need to get myself some Bay rum and just- (laughs) You know, sobito to to get through the moment. Um, but the grief piece, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the things that a lot of us are taught in modern U.S. society is to disavow and ignore grief as much as possible. Um, we are. It's awkward if we're sad in public. Um, we do not have a. a sort of big tradition here in the U.S. And by that, again, I mean dominant culture-wise, white Anglo culture-wise. We don't have people like grieving in the streets. We don't have a ton of like ceremony around it, but a lot of immigrant communities, a lot of folks of color, a lot of indigenous folks, a lot of us certainly have rituals around that. And many of us have been um, told to stop Many of us have been criminalized for practicing whatever rituals we've practiced historically. Um, We're told that it's not professional, that it's not healthy. And most of that is false. (laughs) Um, And so one of the biggest things that I would encourage us to do is to actually ritualize grief, to actually feel it rather than push it away all the time. Um, Because if we keep pushing it away, what happens is that doesn't go away. It just keeps growing underground And, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, your family cooked with a, with a pressure cooker, but my abuela definitely cooked with a pressure cooker a lot. It made me really tender, but also it was very dangerous, right? (laughs) If we did not pay attention to that pressure cooker, we could die. Like that could explode. Um, I remember hearing a lot of, you know, advice and sort of, um, warnings about the freaking pressure cooker and we're actually that pressure cooker. So if we don't get moments and opportunities to let out some of the feelings and metabolize them, they harm us. They turn into chronic pain, chronic tension, muscle aches. Um, our adrenal glands, if we are under constant stress, which a lot of us are, it is toxic. It's it's toxic to our body. It's. Messing up our adrenal glands' responsibility, it is increasing our levels of cortisol. There's no body system that is not affected by trauma and by constant stress, right? And we live in a world, right, under capitalism, where that is the order of the day, um, and the expense and sort of the the expectation of how we are going to exist, and also in movement work we're expected to martyr ourselves and run ourselves into the ground and not even reap the benefits of some of the work that we do. So part of me, you know, part of dealing with grief for me is actually giving ourselves space to feel it rather than just push it away, giving ourselves rituals. And that doesn't have to be a ritual that you inherit. You could just make up a ritual. That is still a ritual. The only, you know, the basic things that you need is some form of structure, some form of repetition, some form of intention, and usually, you know, some physical object and you're good. You can make something up. No one else has to do it the same way as you do for it to be a ritual. Um, say that one and structure repetition. What was the other one? Structure, um, structure, repetition. There's some kind of physical object probably, or some kind of somatic piece that you want to put in there um and an intention. I love that. Um you need, you know, something that you're yeah. trying to get through this ritual. It can just be like I'm burning all my ex's letter at the fire pit. <laughs> that could be the ritual, right? That could be it. I've done rituals with clients where we just go outside and scream and that's it. Like we go, we walk in silence, we do a scream, we have the intention and then we're done. That's it. Um and you know, in terms of grief, the the thing to also keep in mind because this is what trips me up a lot is it is not going to be over in five minutes or a month. Grief is something loss is something that will be with us for an extended amount of time. It usually comes in waves um, and we learn to live with it and manage it. But losses in our lives don't just disappear. They just, we build our life around them and next to them Right there's a there's a metaphor someone used in an art piece and I don't remember who the person is I would love to credit them but um, this person drew grief like a ball in a box and at the beginning the ball is as big as the entire box it it occupies everything and it's a metaphor for how grief you know when we're acknowledging it or when it's starting usually just takes up so much of our energy so much of our time um, and it's huge and it feels deeply overwhelming. Over time, the ball gets smaller and smaller. And so you are able to put other things in the box. You can put your hand in the box and not touch the grief at all sometimes. But it's still always there, right? And even if it gets really, 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 really tiny, the grief will always be there. um, Which on some level can feel maybe sad and scary that, oh, God, I can't get rid of this, right? But on the other hand, it means that there's going to be so much else in your life around it that it can just be part of you know, your experience. It doesn't have to be front and center all the time, um, especially for people who lose sort of things that feel really big to them, whether that's family or a way of life or a big, important job. Those are things that I would encourage us to see as experiences, again, with challenges, but also gifts, right? And experiences that we don't have to face alone. These are things that we can build community through, I I myself have my parents still alive, but I have a lot of friends who've lost their parents where their parents have died or disconnected from them in some way. And part of their healing has been to find other people who've lost their parents or who've had their parents die or be separated through migration issues um, and build community with them so that there's other people who have been through a similar experience and can viscerally understand it more and differently than someone who hasn't. So grief and managing grief also relates to connecting to other people. Um, Grief, again, part of it is disconnection. It makes us feel like we're the only ones who have ever felt this massive pain. And we're generally not, right? Not to downplay it, but we are generally not. There's other people who've dealt with it and they may have other lessons to tell us how to manage it, right? I, I, the, the, lessons I can tell someone who's lost their parent come from my intellectual and community understanding. I have not felt that in my body though. So the way that someone else who has experienced that can talk to someone is very different and not to say better or worse, it's just different and valuable in a different Mm way. Um, and so, especially when grief comes in waves that feel really overwhelming, especially when grief comes with suicidal thoughts, right. That can be really terrifying. So, the other thing that I would encourage people to know, not just think about, but know, is that suicidal thoughts are not always about actually wanting to die, right? A lot of people don't share that they're feeling suicidal because they don't want to scare other people or because they're afraid of being institutionalized, which is extremely fair, um, or they're afraid that they're overreacting and they're going to be made fun of. And at the core of a lot of suicidal thought and ideation is a deep desire for change. It is a a symptom of this current reality feels intolerable. I need out. I don't know what else I can do. And death feels like either the only option or the most attractive option or the fastest option. And it doesn't mean that it is, right? Death is not necessarily the answer. And mm-hmm. so what I like to tell people is like, honestly, death's always going to be there for you. Really? If you need it, right. she's going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> like she's coming for us all anyway. <laughs> but you know, if you absolutely need the out, yeah. that girl's there. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You can only go to her once though, yeah. unless, you know, you're in the whole reincarnation thing and then that's a little different, but yeah, right. so she's a little bit of a last resort in that way. But, For some people, thoughts of suicide and death can actually be really comforting Mm -hmm. because it can give them a visual or a fantasy of what could a different world be or look like. And so rather than think, oh, suicidal thoughts are this really bad thing that no one should ever have, I would just encourage us to look at what are we actually looking for? Are there other ways of getting it? And are there ways of safely having some of those fantasies and those thoughts of escape even if we don't act on them. Because we can and we and we are entitled to whatever fantasies we need to to survive.
1: Oof. That one struck a chord for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I was at a point in my life um, where I was at working at a particular institution and things had become so difficult. Um that I felt like I couldn't leave. I just felt like it mm. had a lot to do with a lot of things, but definitely um, some manipulation and some abuse. Um, and I literally had moments where I was like, maybe if, and I was like, wow, did I just think that? Like maybe if I have this tragic accident and I am horribly sick or not, able to function like I literally was like maybe if I go in a coma then I'll get a real book mm-hmm. and I just snapped out of it and I, I was like did I just have that thought like that is so you know disturbing and alarming and and I think you're right it had everything to do with like I don't want to be in this situation anymore I need change and it's it's wanting to escape and thinking real wild stuff about Um, how to do that, you know? And um, so anyway, I think, yeah, like exploring what's that deep change that you want at the end of the day um, is totally resonating with me right now. Um, And the way that you're explaining grief to around like the, the painting that you described, where you do feel like, like it's bigger than even your body. And I've never lost a loved one that was really close to me. So I can't even imagine what that feels like. I can only, I can only imagine what that feels like, I guess I would say. And like the loss of a child, like, I mean, even just Mm -hmm. what it makes me want to cry, you know, the thought of what that would feel like, but I have heard that both um, connecting with others, being in connection with others when you're grieving and, and feeling like there's somebody who would understand and that empathy, that level of empathy that might not that you might not be able to receive, even if others try as much as they can, um, from, that, that you will be able to receive from somebody who has gone through that and knows what that feels like is incredibly significant, you know, in terms of feeling belonging and connection and, and empathy. Um, so I think that's essentially what we should be seeking right now, even with the physical separation that we're under, we can still remain connected. We can still feel a sense of belonging and we can still show each other a lot of empathy in, in this process. And I think, you know, going back to the like, Ooh, that was a rough call. People are struggling right now. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. I don't empathy. Uh, more and how do we practice um, a sense of belonging when you're in, when people are in that place and normalizing it, you know, um, as much as we can.
2: Um. um well, not just, ju- not just always seeking to ignore it or fix it. Cause that's the other thing that some of us are taught to do. It's your job is to fix it. If someone's sad and honestly, sometimes you just need to have someone to be sad with, and that's it. You don't need it yeah. to be fixed or pathologized. Yeah. I just need you to be with me. And sometimes, especially when it comes to sort of whole families dealing with issues or you know, if an entire migrant family is having a, a, you know, a shit show, frankly, with what's going on right now, yes, there will be time for action. There are things that probably have to be done, absolutely, emotionally and for our nervous system sometimes we just need to be miserable together and feel a sense of community around how upset we all are and how sad we are, then just let's mobilize, let's mobilize, let's mobilize. Um, Because all the mobilization, again, though absolutely necessary, is sometimes a distraction or sometimes a strategy to not actually feel our damn feelings. And so, you know, we can't be feeling every feeling 24-7, but we got to let that pressure cooker, you know, do its little whistle or else it's going to pop.
1: Yes a good vision. So, I know that we had kind of mentioned at the beginning, or you definitely had um, flagged wanting to talk a bit about uh, liberation health and, you know, radical sort of politics around mental health, but health in general and well being. And so, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that. Um,
2: Absolutely. Um, so the, I wanted to give a, a specific shout out to it just because it's a particular theory and method and framework. And I'm blessed to be in community with folks who developed it in Boston. Um, Dawn Belkin Martinez is one of the people that I want to shout out specifically. She's still super involved in community mobilization and education and all this stuff. And there's also a social worker. Um, and so the liberation health idea, uh, is that it, requires us to look at problems, not just as the matters of individuals or families, but it is something that relates to the economy, the politics around the person or the family. It relates to culture. It relates to history. And so to actually be able to fully address a problem that someone has, we can't ignore those. And in fact, if we ignore them, we can provide a half-baked solution that doesn't work long-term. So there's a particular way that with liberation health, we look at whatever problem a person is bringing. So we draw a triangle, we label one side personal, one side cultural, one side institutional. And when, and then we put the problem in the person's own words in the center and whatever the problem they bring in, we look at, okay, what are the personal dimensions of this problem? The things that you are feeling, the thoughts that you are having around it, um, anything sort of Very close to you and your body and your mind that relates to that problem. Then we look at cultural, which is about ideology. It's about social messages. It's about, you know, what does your family say about this problem? What does society say about this problem? And then we look at institutional. So that's the most zoomed out version. We look at, you know, policy. We look at international law. We look at Sort of very large scale. What are the factors that affect the problem that you're having? How might your problem be not just affected, but maybe rooted in the problem that you put at the center of the triangle? Um, whether the problem is my depression or my partner and I keep fighting, or I'm having trouble paying for my visa or anything like that. Um, we want to look at those three dimensions. Um, for a lot of reasons, but partly to to highlight the role of ideology, right? How we think about things and how we are taught to think has a big role in even saying what is or isn't a problem. Um, this is a way that people can become subjects. It's a way that we can see us as having agency and power and the ability to name what's going on rather than being told by a professional what's wrong with us. Um, this is also a place where we can start to consider these bigger factors, but also historically, right? What is the impact of history on these factors or on these problems? Um, And so when we use that frame, it depathologizes a person's depression or a person's anxiety. It's not just about your brain is broken. The chemicals aren't working. It's okay. Well, it would make a lot of sense that you would have these panic attacks if you know xyz happened in your childhood or you have been through hell and high water during the earthquakes in Puerto Rico and it makes it builds that connection you know we've been talking a lot about community and the role of community in healing it brings the idea of community and community factors into the definition of the problem as well as the solution so that's one of the things that again People don't have to necessarily, you know, buy the Liberation Health book or read the website, but if they at least remember the, you know, can I look at the personal, cultural and institutional aspects of my problem, I will consider that sort of a victory because so many of us are taught that our problems are personal and there's no way to deal with them unless we just fix it ourselves. Um, And it gives us both all the burden of fixing it and all the responsibility when we are not usually the only ones responsible for the problems we have. Um, so it's kind of that other side to the community healing piece. It's the okay community responsibility piece that is often missing.
1: And it's pretty wild that health, as we know it in this country, mental health and well-being, that is not the lens that, um, that we see it through. That it really is, again, the pull yourself from your bootstraps type of you know, capitalist mentality and that, um, that we don't live in a vacuum and that we are, you know, uh, to quote Marx or to quote, was it Engels or Marx or maybe Lenin, um, you know, or maybe it was one of those dudes, Um, one of those socialist dudes, uh, communist dudes. um, It's social being creates social consciousness in a lot of ways. And so it's, it's real. Um, I think that we live in a, world that influences how we feel and that, you know, regulates and, de- and deregulates our nervous systems and our emotional state and our spiritual state. And I appreciate, um, I appreciate the project. I appreciate the analysis. And I also think it's wild that that is, has not, it's not something that has been more integrated in the way that, um, people practice, Professionals, practitioners do health and mental health. And that I think is a basis for how do we re-envision, reimagine, and begin to really fight hard for what health can look like in this country, especially with the reflections of this moment and how this entire pandemic is, um, both being handled, but who's being the most impacted in this moment and who historically has been the most, um, pathologized, but also, uh, impacted by, um, health disparities, um, because racism kills and because, um, homophobia kills and, um, because of all of the, you know, sexism and patriarchy kills. Uh, and so, um, I really appreciate it. And can you say one more time what the website is for you? And then for folks that might want to also check out this, uh, health liberation um a site i think you named it
2: oh yes absolutely so for me it's just aidamandule.com um i'll you know I'll probably be in the show notes and for liberation health and particularly the, the folks in boston kind of where it originated um, or was articulated in this way and right? i don't want to claim that we people made that up here um just cuz you name it doesn't mean you made it up um bostonliberationhealth.org is the way to connect um and it feels particularly, you know, useful to also name the the place where I practice clinically is called the Meeting Point, and the tagline is "Social Justice Heals," and that feels like you know we just talked about how all these oppressions cause sickness, um, and we're thinking, okay, so what is the solution? How do we heal? Social justice, right? Like widespread social, economic, political, all these forms of justice is what we need to heal, and you know, any, any healing work that is not anti-oppressive is frankly contributing to the problem. We're so, I'm so happy
1: and so grateful that you um, accepted my invitation to have this conversation. There's so many gems, um, so much knowledge that you've shared with us and I'm excited for folks to listen. And I, I will be pulling out um, all kinds of quotes and uh, some of the tools that you talked about to share with folks as well. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. It was an honor to have you, Ida.
2: It's a pleasure. And I'm so excited for all the ways that this is going to grow. And, you know, I can't wait to continue healing and community with all y'all.
0: Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. Music is by Rafael Maya. Find us on social media, at la cura podcast and at con Mi gente c-o-n-m-i-j-e-n-t-e please rate us subscribe so that you are notified as soon as the newest episode drops and share your favorite episodes with your friends
1: Ba-ba-la-u.